0: We appreciate the presence of everyone tonight on this Sunday evening. I hope that uh, our time spent together this evening, a little time of worship and meditation and thinking about spiritual things will help us as we go into the week, into the work week, face the challenges of the work week, kind of charge our batteries as it were, get us ready to face the day tomorrow and then throughout the rest of the week. And in the middle of the week, of course, we'll have another uh, assembly where we uh, spend some time in prayer and singing and studying of Scripture, and hopefully that will help us to uh, go through the week as well. I'm going to begin this evening by reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're just going to read a few verses, but as we read through these verses, uh, I, although I'm not sure that Paul has the year 2022 in mind when he wrote it, Still, it provides an accurate description of our age. He says in verse 1, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, Conceited, lo- lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. So there's a, a list of behaviors and attitudes and characteristics that will be found among men and women in the last days. And again, I don't know that Paul had our age specifically in mind, our, our time specifically in mind, but it certainly describes uh, the attitudes and actions and behaviors of, of our time. If, if I'm at home at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, chances are I'm going to be watching Jeopardy. I, I like Jeopardy. I've liked it for a long time. And we get an episode of Jeopardy at 3 o'clock and then number, another one at 3.30. So I get to watch a full hour of Jeopardy. It's not, not every day, but if I'm at home, I'll usually uh, watch Jeopardy. Sometimes I know the answers, or the questions rather, and sometimes sometimes I don't. You know, go through the whole board and I'll know hardly any of them. Sometimes I'll know the final Jeopardy, even though I haven't known any of the others. Now my favorite thing to have happen on Jeopardy is when the Bible is the category. You've probably seen that, when the Bible is the category and nobody will know any of the Of course, in Jeopardy, you give the question. The answer is provided, and you give the question. And so, no, nobody will know what the question is supposed to be. Sometimes there will be one contestant, and they'll have some Bible knowledge, and they'll just zip right through the category, while the other two are just standing there watching. But I like Jeopardy. Maybe you like Jeopardy as well. A few weeks ago, something unusual took place on Jeopardy. And it doesn't have anything to do with Alex Trebek. You know, he died quite some time ago. They have other hosts now. But there was a transgender contestant on Jeopardy. And that person won several games. I went, went multiple weeks as the winner and won quite a bit of money. Now, I say that's unusual because I don't think that would have happened back a year ago, maybe a year ago, but several years ago. That would not have been handled the way it was handled uh, here just recently. Things things have changed in our world and things are changing dramatically and things are changing rapidly. It might be that you look at a story on the news or see something on television or online or or read somewhere and you think, what what in the world is going on? (laughs) What's happened to our world? Have we lost our minds? How did we get here? How did, how did we get to this place? Where morality and accept what's considered acceptable behavior has, has changed so much just in a, a few short years. And what can we do about it? Well, I want to try to provide a couple of answers to that. How, how did we get here? How did we get to the place where we are today when so many behaviors are accepted and defended and considered perfectly right and all right, behaviors that just a few years ago would not have been accepted at all. Just give an explanation as to how that happened. And then make a few suggestions as to what we can do in light of these things. You might remember in in the 11th Psalm, the question is asked in verse 3, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's that's a question for our time, isn't it? Our foundations of morality have certainly been compromised, haven't they? People don't operate based on the same foundation of morality that they did just a few years ago. So that's a good question. That's a relevant question. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? So let's talk a little bit about what happened. Now this will take me a few minutes. This is not going to be a five-minute explanation, It'll take me a few minutes to, to go through this, but just hang in there with me and I hope it'll make some sense to you. There have always been people who have rejected the teaching of the Bible, going all the way back to the time period just after the New Testament was completed, into the, the first century, into the second century. You'll find people that just rejected the teaching of the Bible. But in our part of the world, the Western world or Western culture, There was a time when the gospel had a great deal of influence on the world, a great deal of influence in shaping the world, how people thought, how they lived their lives, the decisions that they made. There was a widespread belief in God. The churches, whatever churches were being attended and people were members of at the time, the churches were a central influence in people's lives. The Bible was highly respected, and so people might not have conducted their lives consistently according to the Bible, but at least it was highly respected by people. In fact, there was a time when all serious Bible students would have agreed that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Most most all Bible students would have accepted that proposition. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. The Bible is authoritative as the Word of God. But eventually that began to change. Kind of slowly and gradually, people began to think of the Bible in a different way. With the rise of the scientific method and scientific inquiry, uh, thinking about the Bible began to change. In the 18th century, the 19th century, maybe even earlier, even before that, but certainly by that time, 18th century, 19th century, Great strides were made in the scientific understanding of our world. Isaac Newton lived, for example, 1643 to 1727. Charles Darwin, who has had a tremendous impact on our world even today, lived 1809 to 1892. The scientific method, scientific instrumentation, technology, the practice of scientific inquiry yielded phenomenal results during that time, 18th, 19th, into the 20th century. The results are just just phenomenal. So just think about the scientific development that has taken place over the last 200 years or so. Just absolutely incredible. None of us would want to go back to a pre-scientific age. No, none of us would want to go back to a time before scientific understanding of, of the world. And so there's great benefit to to all of this, but there's a disadvantage as well. There's been a downside. With the rise of the scientific understanding of our world, there has been a decline in the belief of the supernatural. And so after all, if there's a natural explanation for everything, if everything we see and everything we experience is simply the result of... Physical properties and chemical uh, chemical reactions and all all of that. If there's a natural scientific explanation for everything, there's no need to believe in the supernatural. Anything beyond this natural physical world, and the two are pitted against each other. And so there's a scientific approach, and then there's a an approach of faith. And so science is pitted against faith. You're either a scientific person or you're a person of faith. People went to university to learn science and to pursue a career in it. Men and women of science were thought of as enlightened and insightful and sophisticated and educated. Science has to do with the intellect. It's intellectual. It has to do with the reason. It's it's reasonable. Whereas faith It's non-intellectual. It doesn't have to do with reason. It's it's non-reasonable. I hate to say unreasonable, but it's non-intellectual. And men of faith are looked at as unsophisticated and unenlightened and even superstitious. And so it's sort of superstitious to believe in the supernatural. And so that's how things developed. During this time, people began to look at the Bible in a different way. The more highly thought of universities began to look at the Bible in a scientific way. And so we're going to take this book that's been so influential in people's lives, and we're going to begin to look at it, not with the eyes of faith, but but through a scientific process. And so it is analyzed and dissected just like people would say any other book. We're going to treat it just like any other book. The first step in that process was to set the supernatural elements of the Bible aside. See, they're non-scientific, non-intellectual. And so we're going to set aside the miraculous. We're going to set to the side the supernatural element of the Bible and just look at it like any other book. And the, the results of a scientific investigation were that the Bible is not really what it purports to be. It's not the verbally inspired, inerrant Word of God. It's the product of men, in fact, some very fallible men. Now, remember that the scientific approach doesn't allow for the supernatural. And so the Bible could not possibly be the inspired, verbally inspired, inerrant Word of God. Because to believe in those things is almost to, be to accept the superstitious. And so the Bible must be the product of man, and in fact, some very fallible men. The supernatural elements, the miracles of the Bible, are considered legend and myth or embellishment. The traditional stories handed down from generation to generation. The Old Testament stories are really no better or worse than the myths of other ancient cultures. And so the result of this kind of approach to the Bible, the scientific approach to the Bible suggested that the flood story in the Bible, the story of Noah building an ark, and God bringing him the animals, and God keeping him alive during that period of time, and that's really not any better or worse than the Babylonian flood story, the epic of Gilgamesh and all of that. And lots of cultures have flood stories, and and really the Jewish flood story is no better than the Babylonian blood story. They're, They're all sort of the products and the developments of the mind of men, stories and myths and legends handed down from one generation to the next. The authors of the biblical books did not actually write them at all. Moses is not really the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the the Pentateuch, rather a sort of a compilation from various sources, at least four, maybe, maybe even more than that, and really didn't reach its final form until about the 5th century BC. So it underwent a process of copying and editing and redacting until eventually it it, it took the form that we have today. David didn't write the Psalms. They're products of a much later period. There are at least two Isaiah's. Maybe as many as four Isaiah's. And Paul didn't write many of the New Testament letters that are attributed to him. That's that's the result of the scientific approach to the Bible. Jesus was not born of a virgin. That's, That's a supernatural event. Jesus is not born of a virgin. He did not heal. He didn't walk on water. And he certainly was not raised from the dead. What we have in the Bible is a description of the Jesus of faith is the way that that's described. That's the Jesus of faith. That's men of faith telling us the story of Jesus through you know, through their vision of Jesus, through the way they see Jesus. That's not the Jesus of history. To, to find the Jesus of history, to discover the Jesus of history, had, and there have been many who have set out on a quest to find the historical Jesus. What they mean is the Jesus separated from the miraculous and the supernatural. The, the man of history that went around from place to place teaching people, but not, not doing miracles. The supernatural events like the virgin birth are either the adaptation of pagan myth applied to Jesus or the development of the sayings of Jesus and the works of Jesus uh, to address church issues. And so as time went by and churches faced this issue or that issue, a story about Jesus would develop that would help them handle that issue in in the church. And so the result of this biblical criticism as it's called which is taught in many universities today, most universities, who sign up a class for a class in university and the study of the New Testament or something like that this is what you're going to, to hear in most public universities anyway. The result of all that was less confidence in the Bible Its authority was undermined. If the Bible is the product of men, we're under no obligation to respect it or to live by it. The scientific modern approach to the Bible took time to gain widespread acceptance. But again, it's widely held today. After all, it's the result of sophisticated Ivy League establishment. (laughs) Only the unsophisticated would really believe in the Bible as it's written. So confidence and respect for the Bible has been eroded in our world. It's taken some time, didn't happen overnight like that, but it's taken several years to develop to the point where it is today. But respect for the Bible has been eroded. Science is the new religion. Scientists are the new priests. And accomplished scientists are the new high priests. But you know, science has nothing to say about morality. And so I remember a few weeks ago when when Kevin preached, he he talked about the, the scientists who had developed some way to do something very dramatic, very big, potentially very destructive. And the question was asked, yeah, I know what you can do, but is that what you should do? Well, science doesn't answer that question, what you should do. We have the ability to make a bomb you know, that will be oh, unbelievably destructive, the atom bomb or the hydrogen bomb. We have the ability to do that. But if you ask science, should we do it? Well, I, you know, I don't know that. that that's, not, that's not my area of expertise, what, what we should do. You need to ask someone else that question. And so with the standard of the Bible eroded, with the elevation of science into the position of the new religion in the world, not not that I think science is a bad thing. I'm all for it. The question of ought, what ought we do, goes unanswered. If the Bible is removed as the standard, then then what will take its place? We have to have some way of deciding what's right and wrong, what we ought to do. and, And there are several Uh, suggestions that have been put forward. Some would suggest the state will tell you what to do. The state is all powerful. And so you don't worry about what others say or what others suggest. We, the state, will dictate to you what's right and what's wrong and what you ought to do. And if you've been watching the news lately, you see an example of that. (laughs) But most people reject this. They don't want the state telling them what to do. But another idea that's gained widespread acceptance is that, well, there are no absolute rights and wrongs. Everything is relative. There is no objective absolute truth. Everything is sort of a synthesis, a mixture of good and evil, right and wrong, good and bad. And so nothing is absolutely right. Everything is, is, is relative. Here's a rule of thumb that maybe uh, you can uh, adopt and apply. If you ever come across someone suggesting something like that, everything is relative, that is so obviously self-contradictory, that's a red flag. Everything is relative. Well, how about that statement? Everything is relative. Is that relative? (laughs) You know. And so anytime you someone's arguing from a principle like that, you know that, that just can't be right. Without any objective standard to appeal to, morality becomes subjective, relative, individualistic. What I mean by that is morality, what's right and wrong, is what you feel is right and wrong. That's where we are today. And so the authority of the Bible has been undermined. And it's no longer sophisticated, intellectual. (laughs) To believe in the Bible, that's that's passe. You decide what's right for yourself. And if you decide what's right for yourself and every individual does what's right in his own eyes, well, then it's relative. It's not absolute. It might change over time. And it's individualistic. No one has a right to tell someone else how to live their lives. You ever heard that before? How do do we get there? No one has a right to tell someone else how to live their lives. Well, we got there when... The authority of Scripture was eroded and undermined and, and set aside. And so today we have homosexuality and the transgender movement and extramarital sex. and no, no no, that could be condemned as wrong. It would be sh- It'd be shocking to me anyway, if I was watching TV and some commentator said of someone's behavior, "That's wrong. You just don't hear that kind of language anymore. That's wrong!" You see, because everybody can make up their mind for themselves, their own truth. You live according to your truth. And you decide what's right for you. Some would suggest that, well, you know, love should be the standard. We ought to behave in a loving way toward others. Why should my behavior be restricted by your definition of love? Why? Why? You know, if if Gary's got a bicycle and I want the bicycle, well, if, if, if everything, if all morality is relative and subjective and I have the ability to take that bicycle for myself, well, why not? Who's to say that I'm wrong in taking that? Who's to say that he has a right to own something as his own property, you know? That's the way people reason today. And so why should love Why should someone's definition of love be the standard? Why why should I not act in my own self-interest? Why not not act in my own self-interest? The result, of course, is moral chaos. Everyone doing what's right in his own eyes and the consequences are severe. It'd be similar to driving on the interstate with no rules. (laughs) Now, sometimes I, I get a little frustrated and wonder why people drive the way they do. But imagine if there were no rules on the interstate. Well, the, the result would be total chaos, and the consequences would be, would be severe. And that's, that's the world we're living in today. So these attitudes, the Bible is undermined and its authority set aside. Morality is relative and subjective will be the demise of the culture. You see, God's commands are for our good. And when they're disrespected... There are detrimental effects. And we see the effects in our world today. Unkindness. Unkindness. Where did you learn to be a kind person? You might have learned it at home, but I'll tell you where else you learned it. You learned it from listening to people preach about it and hear singing Bible classes about it, you know. And, and when you set that aside, what, what's going to happen? Well, people will become unkind. There'll be violence. We'll see the consequences of the disintegration of the home. Divorce, remarriage weakens the culture. Sexual promiscuity in any form is not good for those involved in it. And and we see all that. We see the consequences of that. One other consequence of that is there'll be increased conflict between believers and unbelievers. And so those who don't believe will become less tolerant of those who do believe. And the conflict between them will increase. You ever noticed that there are none so intolerant as those who cry the loudest for tolerance? You ever notice that? Sure, sure. I, I believe that's true. That's my observation at any rate. And so that's the situation. I told you it would take me a few minutes to get through that. I appreciate you bearing with me. Now now, what can we do? Well, Let me just suggest some, some things that we can do in light of the current situation. We, you can make your faith your own. We can develop our own convictions. You know, sometimes people will rely on the faith of others. Children will grow up in a home that's led by parents who are Christians, and, and they'll simply adopt the faith of their parents and the convictions of their parents. Or we may grow up going to church, and we sort of accept in an unquestioned way uh, the, the teaching of the preacher in the pulpit or the Bible class teacher behind the lectern. Or we might just take on the faith of our spouse. But that's likely to fail when challenged. If you don't have your own faith, rooted and grounded in a clear, deep understanding, when the pressure is put on, you're likely to fall. Now that's the idea over in the book of Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what Paul says in this place. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, And for those who are Laodicean, for those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ. Notice that again. You'll attain wealth, spiritual wealth, by full assurance of understanding, a deep, comprehensive understanding of the gospel. You have to make that your own. You have to acquire that for yourself. So that when the pressure is put on, you can stand. Verse 7, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. I'm reminded of the young preacher, Timothy, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul tells him, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that's in you as well. So here's a man who grew up with a faithful mother and faithful grandmother. There, the, the faith lived in them first. They passed it on to Timothy, but now it's his faith. It was first in your grandmother and your mother. Now I'm convinced it's in you. Now that's, that's the process Young people over here, really people all through it. That, that's what's got to happen. We might hear it from our parents or the preacher or the elders or their Bible class teacher, but at some point, it's got to be my own. Remember what happened to those to the seed that was sown on the rocky ground or the thorny ground? Look at Matthew chapter 13. As Jesus explains, the parable of the sower explains what happens to the seed that was sown on those two types of ground. Uh, we'll pick up in um, verse 20. The one of whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word of God, immediately receives it with joy. It has no firm root in himself, but it's only temporary when affliction or persecution arises because of the word immediately falls away. See, see no root. You know, it doesn't have that clear, deep understanding of the gospel and the faith. And so when affliction comes, it falls away. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that those who hear His words and do them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. You've got to build your house on the rock. When the rains come and the storms come and the winds blow, that house stands firm. That, that's what we're striving for. Make your faith your own. How do you do that? Make a deliberate decision to do your own study. You might be a young person, might be a teenager, but you need to start doing your own study uh, of the Bible. Do your own reading. Develop good spiritual habits. Spend time in the Word, thinking about the Word, thinking about what's being taught. Spend time in prayer. When you attend worship, pay attention. Be engaged. Engage your mind and your thinking. Think along with the preacher. Think along with the prayers. Develop good spiritual habits for yourself. Take the initiative to find the answers to your questions. As questions arise, and they arise in everybody's mind, find the answer to your questions. Do your own listening. Do your own evaluating. The fact is, it may become more difficult to be a Christian in our world. It may become more difficult to be a genuine disciple of Jesus, and so we need to be prepared We must stand on a good, solid foundation or we're going to fall. second thing we can do is determine to be faithful through trial. (coughs) And so I'm going to be faithful. No matter what the trial is, no matter how difficult it is, I am going to be faithful. We just studied the book of Revelation, just uh, concluded that study here uh, recently, a few weeks ago. In the book of Revelation, Christians were under pressure to conform to the uh, anti-gospel culture in which they lived, but they were told, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. And repeatedly through that book, be faithful. Revelation 14, verse 4, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The Lamb is the faithful and true witness. Follow in His steps, and He will see you through the trial. He went through the trial. If you follow in His steps, He will see you and lead you and guide you and support you through the trial. I'm mindful of Hebrews chapter 10, who they as well had experienced some very difficult times because of their faith. And he says in verse 36, you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. You need endurance. So you need to decide today, I'm going to endure I'm going to be a person of faith. I'm going to hold fast. I'm going to be faithful unto death. No matter what the fiery trial might be that comes my way, I'm going to add perseverance to my faith. <clears throat> and I'm going to endure. The third thing we can do is be ready to give an answer. Be ready to defend the gospel. Well, we know this passage from 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Uh, get over there to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. It tells us to be ready. Sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts and always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always, always be ready. Paul makes that remark in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 16. I'm, I'm set for the defense of the gospel. And Paul didn't live in a world where being a Christian was was readily accepted, and so he was challenged everywhere he went. I'm, I'm ready. I'm set to defend the gospel. Now, we may not be the equal of Paul. I'm certainly not. But we can prepare ourselves to explain why we believe what we believe. But you got to prepare beforehand. you got to get ready before you're asked, so that when you're asked you'll be ready to make that defense, to give that answer, to provide that reason. And some people will prepare to give highly sophisticated and technical arguments about the existence of God or the authority of Scripture. But I don't know that that's necessary. Sometimes a simple, easily understood argument will go a long way in defending the truth. And so just have some answers ready. Well, what do you need to know? We need to know that God exists. Now, there are a lot of things about God that I don't understand, and I'm sure we we may never understand we should be able to explain why we believe that God is and what He's like to some degree. Hebrews 11 verse 6, God is uh, those who are accepted by God must believe that He is, that He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. If you look at Acts chapter 17, Paul's presentation at Athens, his defense of the gospel at Athens, you know, it's not... It's not the teleological argument for the existence of God or the ontological argument. Acts chapter 17, Paul stands up uh, Mars Hill and he says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything. Simple answer to the question, why do you believe in God? Is said, like look around you. The evidence is everywhere. If we just simply open our minds to it. And so again, don't need a highly sophisticated argument, real technical with a lot of theological language. Simple argument. Go a long way in defending the gospel. We need to be able to defend the Bible as the Word of God, that all Scripture is inspired of God. One thing we can do is just ask people to read it. I I, I tend to think the Bible is kind of self-authenticating. If you'll read it and you read it with a desire to understand. Now, some people don't do that. They read it with a desire to attack it. (laughs) But but if you read it with a desire to understand, well, it will make a strong impression on you. There's other evidence that the Bible is God's Word. It's harmony, it's prophecy, especially Messianic prophecy supports the idea that the Bible is not a human book. It's special. It's the Word of God. The erosion of the authority of the Bible is critical. It's really played a critical role in the moral decline of our world. Everything we believe rests on the Bible. Everything you believe rests on the Bible. Now you might come to a a belief that God exists just through what He has made. understand that. But understanding what God is like, uh, understanding what God desires, uh, all of that depends on the Bible. It's critical that we understand that the Bible is God's Word and be able to defend that to others. We need to be able to defend the proposition that Jesus is the Son of God. There's lots of evidence for this. Maybe the strongest evidence is His resurrection. He's declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead, Romans verse, chapter 1, verse 4. But there are other lines of evidence. We, we had a meeting on that not long ago, and maybe you, you heard the lines of evidence to support the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the testimony of the disciples. All support the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is raised, He is in fact the Son of God. Now, as we defend these things, the existence of God, the authority of the Bible as God's Word, the resurrection of Jesus, the deity of Christ, as we defend those things, many will remain unconvinced no matter how logical and strong our answer is. And it may be that we suffer some consequences because of our faith. But we cannot fail to speak up for Christ in light of what He's done for us. Right? You cannot fail to speak up for Christ after what he's done for you. And so we need to be ready, we need to get prepared. The time may very well come when we're challenged, but if your faith is your own, see, if you've determined ahead of time, I'm going to persevere, I'm going to be faithful. And if you've settled these questions in your mind and able to give it a defense of them, well then likely you will stand, you'll stand the test because your house has been built on the rock. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the opportunity to approach you in prayer. We're thankful, Father, that you will hear us, and we ask you today to hear our prayer. We pray, Father, that the things we've done today and our worship have been acceptable to you. We pray, Father, that we've benefited from them as well. Father, we live in challenging times when people reject the knowledge of You when they have no respect for Your Word and the authority of Your Word. And so, Father, our culture, our society is adrift and declining, spiraling into ungodliness and immorality. Help us, Father, help each of us to be faithful, to stand for truth, and to Uh, shape our lives and our thinking and our conduct by what your word says. Help us, Father, never to be ashamed of those things, but to live them out in our lives and be able to explain to others why we believe the things that we do and why we live the way we live. Our Father, help us always to keep our eye on the goal, to keep our eye on the hope, of eternal life whatever this situation is in this life father we know it's temporary we know it's not eternal but we do know that there is an eternity beyond this life and so help us father to prepare for it so that we might enjoy eternity and glory with you we pray these things in jesus name amen